0: Well, good morning. Great to be a part of worship with each of you here today. Take your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Kings 18. 2 Kings 18 or page 307 here in our Bibles. We obviously all grew up differently from different families with different values Different hometowns, cultures, race. Our families were more or less functional or dysfunctional. We came up with more or less money than others. All these differences are are kind of part of who we are. I think more significantly, we all grew up a little different spiritually. Different backgrounds, right? Right? You might have come from a home that was not Christian. You might have come from a home that was Christian but mostly in name. You might have come from a family that was true believers in Christ. But even then, if your parents were believers in Christ, they could be more or less sincere or or faithful or authentic than others. Did, Did you ever feel a little bit resentful for something about your background in the sense that it affected you spiritually? Did you ever feel like almost a victim of some spiritual circumstances compared to others? Did you ever hear yourself saying or even just thinking, you know, I think other Christians do better than me because... fill in the blank. I think our passage today and the, and the, the man that we study in particular is going to completely upend any excuse, if you will, about our backgrounds because he grew up with like a really wicked, awful dad. And that was his spiritual legacy. And yet what we see, and I hope this is encouraging, is how he reversed that ungodly legacy. Because that's the opportunity of each of us, no matter where the weaknesses may have been in our backgrounds. And basically it boiled down to two things that Hezekiah, he, that's our king, two things that Hezekiah did. First, he determined personally to be godly. Secondly, and this is really important, he determined to influence others to be and grow in godliness. It's about that simple. I will be godly. I will be do everything possible to influence others to be godly. So let's uh, read the first four verses of 2 Kings 18, and then we'll try to get a context and see what we learn from this inspired account. In the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, the northern kingdom, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, southern kingdom, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. Ancestor, actually. Verse 4, he removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made, for up to that time the Israelites had been burning incense to it. It was called Nahushtan. So we're first of all given the chronological place of this king as he began to rule, so let's return to our... Uh, Look at the history of the kings of Israel and Judah. So the nation Israel, of course, has has been in existence since the time of Abraham. But the kings began with a united kingdom of Saul, David, and Solomon. Books of Samuel tell of that. So the kingdom was united for over over 100 years, but then it divided. It split. Jeroboam rebelled with ten tribes, and so we have a. uh, From that point on, what we've been studying is how Israel is the name given to those northern ten tribes, while Judah is the name given to the southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. Really, Judah, the dominant tribe. And then last week we saw how the northern kingdom ended. It ended with being deported to Assyria. And that is, the, the, 722 BC, the Assyrians came in and took most of the population, scattered them throughout the growing Assyrian Empire. So it just says here who was king at the end. It was this King Hosea. And this is the point at which our story begins. So it has to go back a little bit into time, rewind a little bit, some six years before the end, before chapter 17, because we're going to study this king, Hezekiah, who followed his dad, Ahaz. So when he comes into uh, the kingship, Hezekiah uh, still knows that Israel is still alive and functioning in the northern kingdom. But of course, we know already that it's about to be destroyed and deported. So that's kind of where this chapter is set, and that will help us. It says he was 25 years old when he began to reign. When you're 25, you've made a lot of observations about life already. Uh, I think by 25, there's a personal opinion, most adults have made their general direction of life and character established. At 25, you've kind of decided, most people have, this is the direction I'm going. Of course, by God's grace, anyone can change and be transformed at any time. But it's those 10 years before that, I think, 15 to 25 when I think a lot of young, young people uh, struggle, young adults as well, struggle with what do I believe? What direction will I go uh, spiritually? If you're in that 1525 era, it's time to decide. This is like crucial to the rest of your life. And this opening description of Hezekiah reveals some key spiritual choices that Hezekiah made while young so that he could, at this point, at 25, be this man in verse 3. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. There is a description of his obedience and even the level or the faithfulness of his obedience obedience, right in the eyes of the Lord. So not what he thought was right, and not what other Jews, some of them godly, thought was right. He lived with his accountability to God himself, I want to do what God is directing me to do. This is like the foundation of your home, the footings of any building. This is, this is what your life is built on spiritually. Do I want to do what is right and pleasing in God's eyes? And then there is this amazing comparison to David, just as David. He's a new David some 250 years after Uh, this godly king, the first really godly king of Israel, someone finally fills his shoes. It doesn't say that he was godly like other ancestors. It goes way back and the only one that is ever compared to David. Now, if you think back to his heritage, we've already made mention Ahaz, his dad, was terribly wicked. We studied him uh, two weeks ago. But if you go back to his grandpa, Jotham was a godly man, and his great-grandpa, Uzziah, was a godly man. But when they are described, it says says, Jotham was godly like his dad, Uzziah. Uzziah was godly like his dad, Amaziah. And that's that's all good. But then you come to Hezekiah, and he was godly like his ancestor, David. You see, he didn't have a model of a dad to follow. He could have followed Ahaz. Many many of the kings we've studied are wicked like their dad was wicked. And he could have, in a sense, followed the example of some good godly ancestors going back a few generations. But forever in Scripture, he is recorded as being godly like David, whom the Scripture says, both Old Testament and New Testament, refers to David as a man with a heart like God's. What was it about Hezekiah? that made his heart most like David's, which was most like God's. I think it's found in what he did in verse 4. He removed the high places, smashed the stones, the sacred stones, the Asherah pole, the bronze snake. Because if you can recall, and we studied both his grandfather and great-grandfather, Jotham and Uzziah, they were both godly, but in each case, they're described as not godly removing those objects of false worship. Example of Jotham, back in 15. Jotham did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Uzziah had done. The high places, however, were not removed. Why is that so significant? Why why does the scripture record what they didn't do, and now Hezekiah, what he did do? It's because of the impact that Jotham's neglect of destroying them had. Because he, now in chapter 16, Ahaz, Jotham's son, followed the ways of the kings of Israel and even sacrificed his son in the fire, the ultimate spiritual tragedy. He offered sacrifices and burned incenses where? At the high places, on the hilltops, under every spreading tree, the things that his dad and granddad failed to destroy. And so if you think of that, Hezekiah, when he was 10-year-old Hezekiah, 15-year-old and 20-year-old Hezekiah, is watching his father, Ahaz, self-destruct spiritually. In fact, certainly Hezekiah knew that his dad had killed his brother in a pagan sacrifice. He knew where this went. He knew the impact of of worshiping at those pagan high places. So I think Hezekiah as a teenager says, when I'm king, I'm going to destroy those, those things that are bringing this up over and over over the generation. I'm going to destroy those high places. And so when I, Ahaz died, Hezekiah wasted no time. Smashed, tore down. Even this mention of the bronze snake. They were worshiping the bronze snake. If, if you know that story, it's, it's a 700-year-old bronze snake by now, going back to the time of Moses when uh, God had an important purpose for this bronze snake. If you recall the story, Numbers 21, the people of Israel, in their sin, God was disciplining them with snakes, and so people were being bit by snakes, and God, in his mercy, said, okay, I have your attention. Now here, I want you to, Moses, he said, Moses, I want you to build a bronze snake and put it on a pole and tell the people, if you look at that snake, you will be healed. A great illustration of faith. Nothing they had to do, they just had to look at the snake and indeed they were wonderfully healed just by looking at that snake. What we didn't know until we come to this passage is they kept the snake and people forever were trying to worship or venerate the snake. It's sad that many religions and many in the name of Christianity have so many things, physical artifacts, Statues, crucifixes, holy objects. It's, it's, a, it's the way our mind thinks we want something. You can go on eBay and buy Jordan River water, holy water, anytime. They'll ship it to you. In 2013, archaeologists in, in Turkey uncovered a, a chest. Inside the chest were all kinds of religious-type things, including a scrap of wood that the archaeologists say, this is 660 A.D., so after Christ, the archaeologists say that whoever had this chest believed that this chunk of wood was from the cross, hence making it a sacred or holy object, if that were true. All all these things can become distractions from worshiping the unseen God. God. the the truths about who he is because we now have this thing that seems to be magical in some way. So Hezekiah chopped up the bronze snake and sent it to the salvage. Application is we've got to be willing sometimes to remove sources of temptation. Hezekiah not only would not worship at these places, he destroyed it so others wouldn't be able to be tempted by it. His godly uh, grandfather and great-grandfather didn't worship there, but they didn't destroy it. So how do, you, how, do we, how do we know what to get rid of? I suppose there's a time where you say, I just wish we had no screens. Because of all the problems that screens create. But that's probably a, impractical or impossible. So, so what are we going to do about limiting our screens? Protecting ourselves and our children to some degree of, of how do we help guide them? What, what do we do about, what do, what do you do about, about alcohol? What is your, your conviction about alcohol? In, in what ways are you controlling it or it controlling you? What is your, your children's exposure to that? Language. What words won't you say? inappropriate see these are practical type things and I know that the the, the problem I, I, I hesitated as I thought about saying this going I know the tendency we have often as Christians because there's another whole end of the spectrum where we can get go down the road of legalistic pride these are the things we don't do and thus begin to define holiness by what we don't do and obviously there is no rule or physical restriction that's going to make us holy But the wonderful thing is that as believers in Christ we have the Holy Spirit that is God himself living within us so that we can make wise decisions personally by our own convictions not judging the other Christian and what limits they do. We can make these decisions that can help us in tangible ways to guard our hearts. I know that if I If I keep unhealthy snacks in the bin above my desk, I'm going to eat them. (laughs) If they're on the premises, they get eaten, and they get eaten too soon. So there's certain limitations, you know, how often am I going to do that? Because if I have them, I'll eat them. And if I don't have them, then maybe I shouldn't even buy them. So it might be walking down the, you know... The pet food aisle instead of the snack aisle might be helpful to me. What I'm saying is whatever it takes to help you spiritually to restrict or expose yourself from certain temptations. What else marked Hezekiah's spiritual commitment? It's these verses that we read together a few moments ago. Verse 5. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. So he, since the time there was a Judah, southern kingdom, he's at the top of the list, if you will. He held fast to the Lord. I love that phrase. He did not cease to follow him. He kept the commands the Lord had given Moses, and the Lord was with him. So we'll see how God blessed him. But he trusted in the Lord. How is that a contrast to his dad, Ahaz? If you think back a few weeks His dad trusted political alliances, money, and idols. So when he was threatened by one country, he made an alliance with another country. But to make an alliance, you need to pay them. And so he needed money, so money will help me. So he went and robbed the temple treasuries to to pay off this, get this political alliance. And then later on, he worshiped 2 Chronicles 28 says he offered sacrifices to the gods of Damascus because he thought they could help him. So his dad was always trusting in anything but God. Hezekiah says, I'm going to live differently. I'm going to trust in the Lord. And we will see in, in, in other parts of the life of Hezekiah and in other studies how, how that looked and what God did. But, but where do you go in crisis? Where, where do you go when there is a need? When you're torn between, this is the way my friends think, this is what the book or the blog says or... I have a clear principle in Scripture that I, there's nothing I can do but to trust God. Or if I trust God, I need to make this step of obedience. And Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, which led him and directed him constantly, verse 6, to go to the commands of Scripture. Sad part of pastoral ministry sometimes through the decades has been to try to direct people to Scripture and they go, I hear you, but. And and they, they, they go another way to find someone that agrees with them. So the commands given to Moses. How did Hezekiah know these commands? He had to see the scriptures. Where were the scriptures? They were in scrolls in the temple. The king of Judah would always have access. Steps away was the temple. And so he got to see the scrolls that the scribes could bring it in. He he knew the commands, and so did his dad. His dad lived in the same palace next to the temple, could have gotten access to the same scriptures, but his dad did not. You may have heard the saying, this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. Uh, I know there's more nuance than that, because I know a kid can, can learn and memorize Scripture and still choose not to believe in Christ or follow God's Word when they're younger, but let's talk about grown-ups. As grown-ups, if we really want to know and obey God, we will invest in His Word, studying it and reading it. If, as grown-ups, we are passive about knowing and obeying God, we will be passive With God's word. It just, the principle is consistent. So Hezekiah is a wonderful exception among the kings of Judah. He stuck to the word of God and God honored that. You see that verse 7 and 8 now. And the Lord was with him. What a precious statement that is for God to be with and there's a there's a true personal nature to this relationship the Lord was with him and he was successful in whatever he undertook he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him from watchtower to fortified city he defeated the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory these are specifics that as we studied Ahaz it was exactly the opposite he, he subjugated himself and paid off Assyria, and he lost to the Philistines, and he, he. So God honored Hezekiah for sticking with the word of God, because he was not like his dad. I don't know who have been your influencers. Obviously, parents are an example. Um, But there's others who influence our mind. Um, Social media influencers, obviously, begin to be things that affect our worldview, our mindset, our priorities. But you choose who you will follow. And I hope that this, this passage about Hezekiah can be an encouragement to you, particularly if you grew up with quite a few questionable or uh, wrong influences, or no influences, you're left on your own in some sense, to know that you can hear from God, to know that you can walk with God, to know that because if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, his resurrection, you now have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and God, the Holy Spirit, lives within you, not only to teach you through his word, but to guide you and actually empower you. We have everything we need for life and godliness, Peter would say. And so you're grown up. You can decide if you will do what's right in the eyes of the Lord. Interestingly, now in verses 9 through 12, uh, the writer summarizes the previous chapter. The previous chapter was the story of Israel's final days, how they kept disobeying God and the king of Hosea and. Assyria came, defeated them, and deported them all, and scattered them everywhere. Okay, it, it basically tells that same story in verse nine and following. King, in King Hezekiah's fourth year, so he's down in Judah, which was the seventh year of Hoshea, Shalmaneser came and besieged for, for three years, captured Samaria, the capital, deported them. Verse twelve: This happened because they had not obeyed the Lord their God, but violated His covenant. Why is it there? It's actually a very good place for it because I think what the writer is 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 teaching us by the way he put together this chapter is to show us Hezekiah flourished spiritually because he would refuse to be like his dad, but also he's the king and he refuses to be like the northern kingdom because he saw firsthand. So so. Hezekiah is king in Jerusalem and from the capital city on his news feed he finds out what's happening in the fourth year of his reign he finds out what's happening up in Israel and Assyria came in and because of their disobedience God allowed them to be deported and he says i got to lead my country differently because I see what's happened there we don't need to make all the mistakes ourselves we, we can learn from the from the bad, don't waste the bad examples in your life if you have them. <clears throat> Be spiritually smart enough to look down the road and observe two kinds of lives. Those who are following the world's way of happiness and those who are finding joy in their relationship with God and say, which way do I want to go? We have a culture that <clears throat> kind of celebrates the, the young years you know, kind of that 15 to 25 or whatever. You know, that's that's the time, you know, to, to kind of live wild and it's okay, you know, to enjoy being young, impulsive, uninhibited. Yeah, right. Look down the road a little. Someone who persists in, 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 in the alcohol and the pills and the sexual freedom, see how happy they are at 50 or 60 or 70 if they if they continue that lifestyle and then decide. Hezekiah, by age 25, had seen enough just by watching Dad. And may we be so wise. In 2 Kings, the story of Hezekiah's life, chronologically, jumps from the beginning, year 1, in verse 1. Then we just read in verse 9, year 4. As we go to verse 13, we leap to year 14, the 14th year of Hezekiah's reign. Well, a lot happened before then. In fact, let's go to 2 Chronicles 29 now to find the supplemental, helpful information of what actually happened in year 1. What did Hezekiah, young Hezekiah, do to make things different in his nation the nation he led there, there is except for david and solomon there's no king with more material that we know of than hezekiah three chapters in second kings four chapters in second chronicles are all devoted to hezekiah so we're going to need to spend some time to to learn more of what god wants us to know through hezekiah uh, let me just insert Parenthetically, a little bit what some of the sermon plan is uh, going into the fall. First of all, next week, reminder: we have the outdoor service, so don't be here at nine o'clock; you'll be very lonely. Uh, but come together at ten forty-five. We're uh, combined Sunday service as a regular Saturday, but combined Saturday at, at the at the park in uh, at the Upper Lake, or rather the lower part of uh, Port Washington Park. There, so I'm going to have a special message there for. Um, Presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to speak from uh, Ephesians 2, and I'd encourage you to invite friends and family, and, and God would uh, give us a, a harvest spiritually. So be praying about that. But then, uh, September and October, we're going to take a break from 2 Kings for a series of biblical messages on our core values as a church. You can, you can read our core values anytime on our uh, website website. But they are they are biblical convictions we have, and we want to we want to talk through uh, really what the Bible says about these core values. Then we're going to return to Second Kings and finish Second Kings, and in fact we'll have to jump back into the life of Hezekiah because we're just getting part one uh, today. So in this part one, though, we see who Hezekiah is—a godly man. But now in Second Chronicles twenty-nine, we find how he influenced others. Because who we are affects always what we do. And so if someone is godly, truly, and growing in godliness, they care about influencing others. So uh, verses one and two are really the same as information as we've read, but go let's start with verse three. In the first month of the first year of his reign, so we're we're back at day or year one of Hezekiah, first month, first year of his reign, he opened the doors of the temple of the Lord and repaired them. To realize how significant that is, just look back a couple paragraphs in the previous chapter 28 verse 24 about his dad. Ahaz gathered together the furnishings or vessels of the temple of the Lord and took them away. He shut the doors of the Lord's temple and set up altars at every street corner in Jerusalem, worshipped at the high places. So he His dad closed down temple worship. And so if Hezekiah is going to be a different kind of king, he cannot just be thinking about, well, I'm going to be godly. But I'm in a position of influence. How am I going to help my nation to be godly? He realized the basic spiritual principle that our spiritual life always affects others around us. Uh, you influence your friends. Obviously, if you're a parent, you influence your kids. Any setting that you have any leadership, uh, you you are an influence. And so, Hezekiah began with the first obvious thing: we got to get the doors open to the temple. We got to get back to worshiping. So he repaired the doors. I don't know what his dad did to him. I don't know had him welded shut or something. I suppose, but. uh he, he ruined them somehow, so we've got to reopen the doors first of all. Then he calls together his, his, uh, his peers in age, the Levites, verse 4. He brought in the priests and the Levites, assembled them in the square on the east side and said, Listen to me, Levites, consecrate yourselves now and consecrate the temple of the Lord, the God of your fathers. Remove all defilements from the sanctuary. Our fathers were unfaithful they did evil in the eyes of the Lord our God and forsook him. They turned their faces away from the Lord's dwelling place and turned their backs on him. So he says, let's wake up and realize what has happened. And we're going to be different. Consecrate yourself, priests and Levites. Then we're going to remove the defilements from this temple. The Levites are one of the tribes of Israel, one of the 12 tribes. The Levites were distinct because they were in charge of the worship. Uh, they, they, uh, they, the priests were one part of the Levites, but the rest of the Levites served in the temple, temple servants. They didn't have a land mass or area assigned to them through these centuries. Rather, they had cities so they could be throughout the uh, people of Israel. But since the division of the kingdom, it seems that uh, probably most of the sincere priests will have migrated south because the only place where true worship was taking place was in Jerusalem at the temple. And so we would imagine that most of them were centered now in Jerusalem. But the temple doors were shut, so they were out of work, and uh, Hezekiah puts them to work restoring the worship that his dad shut down. So consecrate yourself. Uh, Exodus 29 and 40 tells how priests were to consecrate themselves, certain kind of washings and and, uh, cleansing their robes, anointing with oil, certain sacrifices, a process which was an indication of of where they were at spiritually because before you can lead others to worship, you have to focus on your own spiritual life. So consecrate yourselves. Then he says what we're going to do, verse 5, is remove all the defilements from the sanctuary. Thinking back through the previous chapters, we we have some idea of what that is because it was Hezekiah's dad, uh, Ahaz, who had shuffled the furniture, brought in a different uh, uh, altar, moved this, moved the basin, uh, tore off stuff, silver and gold, to send to Assyria. He had really messed things up, and I can only imagine with all of his dad's idolatry, what kind of things were being stored in the temple? So a lot of things had to go. Think garage and closets, those kind of things. Remove them. Why? Because our fathers were unfaithful, evil. They forsook. They, they turned their faces. They turned their backs on God. There's like five ways to say, we can't repeat what our parents were spiritually. So, so that's, that's the cause of that. And the consequence was, verse 7, that worship got shut down. It's the first thing to go. They also shut the doors of the portico and put out the lamps. They did not burn incense or present any burnt offerings at the sanctuary to the Lord our God. So Hezekiah tells his Levite workforce it was their sin that shut down worship. Frankly, as as elders and pastors, one of our concerns as we think through our church family is when someone is no longer participating in worship. And the question is obviously why, if they've been involved in the fellowship and worship, and now they're not, why? Is there uh, obviously there's some legitimate reasons of of uh, medical or or whatever, but so often it seems to be logistical personal circumstantial kinds of things when of course the concern would be is it spiritual is there is there something that is keeping us from worshiping with others and uh, at least for for Hezekiah and, and the Levites they said let's just we're not dishonoring our dads by saying this but we got we can't sugarcoat it they quit worshiping because of their sin, they turned their backs on God. That's why they quit worshiping. So we just stated the facts, and I think sometimes we have to be honest about our, our in, the influences in our life. When we when when we find that there is some sin pattern that we're dealing with, and we go, "Yeah, you know, so did my dad or my mom or something." It's okay to be honest. Don't doesn't mean you're supposed to. Fix the previous generation. In fact, you're supposed to leave it behind and become the person God wants you to be. And that's really what he is saying. He said, let's let's understand that, but put it to rest because we're going to be different, verse 10. Now I intend to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, so that his fierce anger will turn away from us. My sons, do not be negligent now, for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him and serve him to minister before him and burn incense. He says, let's look at what God's will is for us in this generation. It's got to stop with us. So somewhere, of course, we know already that Hezekiah had the heart to heart with God, but now he's having a heart to heart with his peers. Have you had heart to heart with close friends? assuming you've, you're pursuing that with God, friends who would uh, like encourage you and help you to be accountable. Let's not be negligent. Let's hold ourselves accountable. I, I'm encouraged uh, in, in recent months and the last couple of years actually at Open Door with the way I see more and more of this. I hear conversations about men who are getting together and planning to get together about uh, the purity issue, uh, conversations of women who are gathering for, for Bible study, uh, the women's fellowship this fall. We, there's, a, there's a sense of we need this accountability. There are teenagers who on their own initiative are meeting together to encourage each other. Imagine that. Not parent, not, not pushed by the youth leaders college students who lead other college students and uh, I, I know that some of you pray regularly for Open Door Bible Church I know that even in recent years that's been an emphasis for some and I thank you for praying because I think God's at work and is doing a work here and I, and I trust you want to be a, a part of that but it won't be easy there will be challenges we'll see verses 12 to 14 list the names of the Levites who participated in this. And I think it's, it, it's really neat that God says, I want to include the names of the Levites who led this, who said, yes, we are consecrating ourselves. Yes, we're going to get rid of the impurities from the temple. We're not going to be the typical Levi. We're not going to be the typical guy of our day. And so their names are, are listed. God sees each name And so verse 15 says, When they had assembled their brothers and consecrated themselves, they went up to purify the temple of the Lord as the king had ordered, following the word of the Lord. In other words, let's do it right, let's do it the way the the, the scripture says. The priests went into the sanctuary of the Lord to purify it. They brought out to the courtyard of the Lord's temple everything unclean that they had found in the temple of the Lord. The Levites took it and carried it out to the Kidron Valley. Some of the, the valley outside of Jerusalem, there became like a city dump of the stuff that had to go, thinking of idolatrous or defiled or damaged things in the temple. And so while on one hand, Hezekiah had already, we saw in 2 Kings 18, removed the high places, the, the public you know idolatry, the Asherah poles, cut up the bronze snake. He took care of that stuff out there, but now this is a cleansing inside the temple where where they're to be devoted to worship. He says, we've got to take the trash out of the temple. What's the temple of God right now in this New Testament age? We are. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. That's why we don't have a temple to go to to worship now. This isn't the temple. This is a place where A bunch of temples gathered to be the temple of God. But sometimes you have to take the trash out of the temple. Are you willing to think about specific, tangible things that have to go from your life? Are there pills in drawers? or bottles in closets that need to go? Are there magazines in garages or sites on browser histories that need to go? Is there money hidden or expenses hidden from spouses? Are there contacts on our phones or friends on social media that need to be removed are there mental things that have to be addressed attitudes of the mind resentment bitterness hatred revenge manipulation impurities greed They've consumed our mind for so long. And it's like there's a point at which you say, it's got to go. And until that stuff was taken out, they could not restart worship. And until we are addressing those things, we will be squelched in our worship. But now they could restart so they, they take out the trash in verse 6, 18 and, and 19 they come back to Hezekiah and report, we did it we took this stuff out of the temple we cleansed uh, some of the articles, we got it all in its place verse 19, we've prepared and consecrated all the articles that King Ahaz removed in his, in his unfaithfulness while he was king they're now in front of the Lord's altar so verse 20, early the next morning King Hezekiah gathered the city officials together. They're going to have a grand reopening of the temple. He gathered the city officials together and went up to the temple of the Lord. They brought seven bulls, seven rams, seven male lambs, seven male goats as a sin offering for the kingdom, for the sanctuary, and for Judah. And the king commanded the priests, the descendants of Aaron, to offer these on the altar of the Lord, which is what they then did. So the Levites are restarting the priests, among the Levites especially, are going to restart the sacrifices that had been stopped, the worship that had been squelched. It's kind of interesting, if you go back to the book of Leviticus, the first, what, five verses of the book of Leviticus begins to tell the instructions for how do you bring sacrifices to worship. But it's talking about individual worship, so the individual worshiper would bring the lamb or something as a sin offering, and it actually says that the individual worshiper was to lay his hand on the animal and slay it. The individual did the killing. Then it got turned over to the priests and they handled the, the, the blood and the, and the ceremonies that were to follow. That was for individual sin offerings, but this is a national one, and that's why he called on the priests to do it on behalf of who? The kingdom. The sanctuary, so the kingdom perhaps means the royal court and the sanctuary is all the workers and and then Judah, meaning the whole nation. What's exciting is it even goes farther. Jump down to verse 24. The priests then slaughtered the goats and presented their blood on the altar for a sin offering to atone for all Israel. This isn't just Judah even. For all Israel, because the king had ordered the burnt offering and the sin offering for all Israel. There is, there is no other way to understand this except to realize that Hezekiah now is concerned, not only for his court, not only for the Levites, not only for his own kingdom, but actually to his brothers and sisters, the other Jews that are in the other ten tribes to the north who have been living in disobedience. Perhaps God still has a plan for them because, you see, it's still six years here before God is going to deport them. And so Hezekiah in his heart is growing bigger and bigger for the spiritual life of others around him. One of the clearest indications of your own spiritual health is how much do you care about the spiritual health of others? How far does your concern for the spiritual health of others go? Does it, does it leave your address? I'm saddened sometimes when I hear Christians describe their spiritual life in only personal terms. As if it's like their financial life, their physical health. I'm good. I read my Bible. I pray. And I listen to sermons. To hear what what I need. I'm good. I'm sorry, but that's, that's kind of the childhood version of the Christian life. I can dress myself. That's really good to dress yourself. Aren't you glad the kids get to that? But you don't stop there. Because a mature adult finds himself many times as parents dressing others. And, and so a mark of spiritual maturity is your care for others. So how can you help someone? How can you serve others? Because that's what, that's what Christ had in mind when he put together the church. So even as you think about your future involvement in, in worship and fellowship or ministries, maybe you're, as you think about the fall don't just think based on, well, what do I need? The question is, where am I needed? That's, that's a mark of maturity. Hezekiah was there at 25 years old. A brand new king. He said, we're going to offer this sacrifice for all Israel because we care about those brothers and sisters in the northern kingdom, don't we? And they looked around and said, oh, yeah, do we? I think we do. Because somebody has to start it and say, yeah, we do care. There's 10, 15 people sitting within 10, 15 feet of you maybe and have you thought about that you're here because of them? And how, what will be your impact on that? Well, this was a spiritually refreshing time in Israel when you have a king like that and you have city officials jumping in, the Levites. Now, in fact, the whole assembly is gathering for this reopening of the temple and you can just think of the joy we're going to read about the joy and i'm thinking about the joy as god finally in this kingdom era can just rejoice at what is accomplished through hezekiah but it's going to involve this corporate worship together what do they do next verse 25 he stationed the levites in the temple of the Lord with cymbals, harps, and lyres in the way prescribed by David and Gad the king's seer and Nathan the prophet. This was commanded by the Lord through the prophets. So they stood ready with their instruments. Verse 27 Hezekiah gave the order to sacrifice the burnt offerings on the altar. As the offerings began, singing to the Lord began also accompanied by the trumpets and the instruments. Instruments of David, by the way, they're pulling out the instruments that he used. And the whole, verse 28, the whole assembly bowed in worship while the singers sang and the trumpeters played. All this continued until the sacrifice of the burnt offerings was completed. Jump to verse 30. King Hezekiah and his officials ordered the Levites to praise the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. So they sang praises with gladness and bowed their heads and worshiped. Singing praises is a crucial part of our worship. First, we've got to gather. We've got to get the doors to the temple open, and, and we're gathered, and we, we have to understand as we come together the, the sin issue. Aren't you glad we don't have to bring animals to church anymore? Don't have to kill any animals, because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. It's all done, and so we come here, and we celebrate, and we take communion just to remember it because we so easily forget, and yet we can we can. I don't know how we can ever come to the Word of God without being aware of sin. If, if a sermon passes or a Bible study passes without you looking at your heart to saying, yeah, there's something God's to, speaking to me about, then probably we weren't listening. So there is a sin factor that we acknowledge our sin and we get this, this sense of, ah, oh, God's grace is flowing and he forgives me, so now I can sing. And the reason we sing praises is because if you you sing about the praise of God, eventually you might actually praise God. We start out just singing. Let's just admit it. Okay, music started. Da, 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 da. But at some point, with a, with, a, with a heart that desires God, at some point while you're singing about the praise of God, you actually do praise God. Now there's actually been a, a connection between you and Almighty Creator God. Can you imagine? That's a powerful thing. And so they sang with gladness. There was one more step. Verse 31. Because so far we've just had the the public sacrifices. the, The group sacrifices. Then Hezekiah said. You have now dedicated yourselves to the Lord. Come and bring sacrifices and thank offerings to the temple of the Lord. So the assembly brought sacrifices and thank offerings. And all whose hearts were willing brought burnt offerings. Now Either the people had come already prepared with with animals in tow, or they had to now now take a little bit of an intermission and go get them from across town or in their their pens around uh, Jerusalem. But now they're bringing their own sacrifices. That'll be burnt offerings. And as you read verses 32 to 35, you find that there were so many brought that there weren't enough priests to do the sacrificing. And so they consecrated some of the Levites and there was just this groundswell, this revival of, yes, we want to bring our sacrifices to God. So the sacrifices publicly restarted, the singing and praises restarted, and now the personal, personal financial sacrifices began as well. Because when they brought their animals, they were bringing their wealth as worship five times in verses 31 to 35, it's clarified these are burnt offerings. Without going through the list of Levitical offerings, one thing we know about the burnt offerings, they were burnt. They were burnt up completely. Some of the sin offering would be burnt, and the rest would go to the priest's, and you come to the feast times and some of the other offerings you, you, were, you were bringing them uh, the grain and that kind of thing and you got to enjoy eating a feast yourself but burnt offerings the whole animal whoosh, as an aroma to God in other words that animal will never again produce baby lambs for you and you will not be able to eat it at your family dinner it was burnt up as a sacrifice. it was a sacrificial financial loss, but it was a spiritual gain because part of what they needed to learn in this restart and this reversing of that ungodly legacy is giving is about worship and worship involves giving because that's that's how we tell God we trust him and so it became a, a whole season of of worship that when we return to our study of Hezekiah a couple months later, we'll see, we'll see more of that. So, what do we learn from Hezekiah about restarting or refreshing or reversing our spiritual direction? I'm going to give you just kind of four summaries, nothing, nothing new here. Number one, I must choose to please the Lord regardless of any spiritual or unspiritual example in my life. Ground zero, we start over. And we can't use that as an excuse. need to understand it if it's, if it's impacting us, but we're going forward to please Him. Number two, I must identify and remove whatever hinders my spiritual progress. And, and this, is, this, is a, this, is, this is where your relationship to God and the indwelling Holy Spirit can guide you to discern for you, not for others, what that means specifically for you. Number three, I must care about the spiritual life of others, not just my own. There's got to be a spark of of desire to reproduce what God's doing in my life. And whatever that means, with whatever your spiritual gifts are and capacities are. But I I need to start with caring. And finally, I must commit to worship with others. With this this heart of confessing sin. That that whatever uh, guilt we're carrying isn't keeping us from worship or fellowship going before God with the privileges of 1 John that if we confess our sin, he's, he's faithful and just because his blood cleanses us from all sin. So the sin issue, and I'm going to sing God's praises with every broken note that I got and, and just wait wait until I recognize that God actually hears plain old me. And then sacrificial generosity and, and begin to seek God. What does that mean for regular uh of sacrificial giving. What is, what is God saying to you? So your background and your family and your influences have mattered to you in many ways. In so many ways, they shape who we are. But who you are now as a believer in Christ is a child of God. You just changed backgrounds. And now the wealth of everything that your Heavenly Father is and that Christ has done in your life, is your new foundation for where your future lies. You've just traded for the perfect Father. And He will be your dad. He will be your guide. You belong to Christ. And that is what matters now. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are needing You and Your great and wondrous love and grace to even think that we can come before You We know we're unworthy. We know our sin. We know um, the continual struggles. We expect to struggle our whole life and not achieve some uh, simple fix to all of our sin problems. We will struggle before you, but we have your Holy Spirit to continually not just convict but empower us to live differently. So, Lord, I don't know what you've said through your word and by your spirit today, Uh, throughout this room or others who who hear this oh god please uh, take your word and translate it to our hearts and may we be encouraged by the example of hezekiah and others who uh, would leave the past behind and choose to walk with you we thank you in jesus name amen